Kurt Lenoff is with us this morning, and uh, gotten to know uh, Kurt over the past, I don't know, year or so, something like that. Uh, he came and introduced himself, and uh, he's met with uh, a group of pastors that I meet with, and um, Kurt is with a group called Northwest Baptist Foundation. It's a group, actually, that helps churches with uh, various financial issues and things like that. That group was instrumental. Kurt was instrumental in helping us uh, purchase that home, that little house that's right over there. And so, uh, but we've actually uh, been talking about uh, him coming and sharing uh, with us uh, some of what God's Word teaches us about the whole issue of stewardship. And so, uh, welcome the opportunity. We've been trying to look for a good time to do that in conjunction with an estate planning seminar that's going to be coming up later in the month, and he'll probably say something about that as well. So really pleased to have Kurt here. He and his wife uh, reside here in Vancouver. Uh, they have one child at home and one who's married, and uh, they've been in the area for, since about 96, I think he said. So uh, Kurt's a nice guy, so you'd be nice to him. No. <laughs> Give him your full attention. Really glad he could be here. Kurt, come on and share with us. Thanks, Scott. I don't know how far that nice guy thing is going to go. We'll see what you think in about 35 minutes. Is that fair? Okay. Part of the reason I prep it like that for you is we're going to take a look at something this morning that is incredibly vast in its implications and tremendously deep in the way that it applies to our hearts. It is bigger than anything that I can possibly completely unpack in the amount of time that we have together this morning. But the beautiful thing about it is I trust that God knows how he loves you in a way that this will be applied to your hearts this morning, and he faithfully will continue to apply it in the days after this. And so whatever you're, you're walking out of here not quite being gripped by, it's okay because he's going to continue to work that out in your life. In some ways, it's going to be similar to those days gone by for many of us in here, where on a hot summer afternoon after playing outside with your friends in the yard, you were just sweaty, you were so thirsty. How many of you ever went over to the, the spigot and turned it on and drank out of that hose? Have you do that? It was before they told you it would kill you, right? <laughs> so... We would, we would partake of that because we were thirsty. And, you know, you'd wrap your lips around the end of that and you just start drinking that water in. Mm, so good and refreshing. However, if you had a smart aleck friend, they might have snuck over to the spigot and turned it up higher while you were drinking out of it. And that water came running down the line and it came into your mouth and you couldn't swallow it as fast as it was going in and it would just pour out the sides of your lips. That's what this is going to be like. I get to do that to you with God's grace, instrumental in all of it, but it's going to be like that. We're going to take a look at what we have been made for, what went wrong, and what has been done to make us right. And we'll find ourselves this morning literally in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1. So if you would turn there with me to the 26th verse, let's read the word together as the Lord works it out in us, and we'll unpack it by his leadership this morning. So this is what is, is written in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. In all fairness, there's a little bit of backstory to this, at least five days' worth. (laughs) See, prior to where we jump in on this sixth day, there was actually an eternity past of, of a father, a son, and a spirit hanging out together trusting one another, knowing and enjoying one another, and literally glorifying one another in all perfection for all eternity past. And they decided to create out of their splendidness something that would reflect their glory, and we are part of that. They had been knowing and trusting and enjoying and making much of each other for for all eternity past, and, and for the first five days, as they ventured, they spoke, and, and things were, came into existence. The planet were on, the stars and the moon, night and day, the vegetation, the critters, the bugs. Everything came into being, and, and all God had to do was, was say, and through the sun, it came to be, and, and as it was, he looked at it, and what did he say at the conclusion of each of the, fifth day, of each of the first five days? It's good. This is good stuff. This is exactly what I've intended. But then we come to the sixth day, and we see that, that God did something unique, unlike even on the first five days, and that God created man to live in satisfying celebration of his glory. On that day. And he did it without just saying, I want a guy or I want a gal, and bam, they showed up out of nothing. He literally created an endeavor that you find in the second chapter that is echoing the essence of relationship. He, he got down into the dust of the earth and formed man in his image, in his likeness, and breathed the breath of life into him. If that doesn't echo the design for intimate relationship, unlike any other created endeavor, I don't know what we would ever find that would. He's intended for that that relationship to be there in that very image and likeness because that's how they had always been. We had been created to know him and enjoy him and make much of him. And out of that, everything else that he says is informed and empowered to be. Because that's how they had always been, was in this incredible community that was so satisfying. And they, they graciously decided to create us and include us in that to know him, to enjoy him, and to make much of him. And it would happen as, as we were in this relationship, we would, we would know our identity, and we would have peace and hope and joy, all of those things coming out of the inherent innocence and, and honor and 
power in that relationship through which we would be able to do all else that he had given unto us to do. Early on, he intended for that to come out first and foremost in our relationship with him and how we related to him as his children. And out of that, how we would relate to one another as Adam and Eve got to be husband and wife and, and the intention to further be parents at some point. And in addition to that, as you, as you read through the first chapter where we were, but you also get into some of the micro expressions of, of stewardship in the second chapter, we get to go forth and multiply. We get to name what was created echoing the creative efforts of the Father through our naming of things and working the earth. And there's so much that was given unto us under this blanket of of stewardship that is to be informed and empowered out of that relationship with him, knowing him and enjoying him and making much of him like they had always been with one another forever before we were. So early on, when he says, let us give them dominion, he's saying, let us give them stewardship. Because God didn't relinquish his reign and rule, but invited us to manage within his reign and rule all that he had created from that point forward into human history, all the way up to today and the days that are to be forevermore. And it won't even end when he comes back. It will continue forever and ever and ever. The definition of stewardship typically comes with the default understanding that you don't own anything, but you manage it for the one who does. Is that fair? But in addition to that, I would give you this definition of stewardship as we would find it expressed very well here early in Genesis. Stewardship is the reality of God owning all and calling man to manage what belongs to God for his glory and the good of all creation. That's stewardship. And it's important to also be gripped by the fact that it is only exercised in response to the awesomeness of who God is within the framework of a dynamic love relationship with him. That's what informs and empowers it. For many of us, when we hear that word steward, the first thing that comes to mind is this, isn't it? (laughs) I don't even have anything green in it. Was this around where we just cut in on the story in Genesis? No, there was no currency back then. Not even close. It would ultimately encompass such a thing, but the thing wasn't even in existence back then. See, stewardship from the very beginning would first come out of us stewarding our portion of the relationship with him. This relationship. We get to respond to to all that he is and, and all that he's offered us in relationship to himself. Then we get to steward our relationship with one another, the, the marital relationship, the family dynamics, the friends, the neighbors, the co-workers, you name it. In addition to that, there's a stewardship of ourselves, these, these image and likeness bearers that we are of the almighty, incredible God himself. The things that we're wearing right now, the clothes, the things that he's given us, right? The homes, the cars, the opportunity to make much of him through the the provision of work. Like they had the garden, we would have our jobs these days. The ministry that we get to be a part of in this world. The time that we are allotted every day to, to know him, enjoy him, and make much of him through the spiritual gifts that would ultimately be imparted unto his people through the working of the Spirit, the 
world that we live in, the, the property this facility's on, the property he's entrusted to you with, all of it and, and anything and everything else you could possibly think of that has been created, we get to use out of being satisfied most in him so that we are free to use it in the way that brings the most glory to him and the most good to everybody else around us. That's stewardship. And it's incredibly vast in all of its applications for our life. So that everything we do all the time, every day, no matter what it is, the motive of it all would be to make much of him and to be to the good of whatever else is alive in this world around us. And it's interesting, at the end of the sixth day, when that had been put into place, all had been created, we were in place, God was there with us. At the end of the sixth day, what did he say about this plan and all of its participants? Very good. He added a very in front of the good. Because it was, it was spectacular. It's the way it's intended to be, and it worked phenomenally well. And on the seventh day, God rested in the splendor of his glory because it is most satisfying. And guess who got a rest with him in that on the seventh day? We did. Adam and Eve got to hang out with him in that. And you notice that there wasn't so much stewarding that happened before that resting in his satisfying glory. Now, there was the relationship with him and one another in play, but it was out of that that everything else would be stewarded on days eight on. It's so different than our rhythms these days, isn't it? Where we, we work to rest instead of resting to work. Resting in the satisfaction of, of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and communion with them and allowing for that to be what informs and empowers everything else we do. What a rhythm. That's the way it was set up, and it worked spectacularly well for some period of time, whether it was, was a week a month, a year, we have no idea, but it worked splendidly for some period of time, did it not? How many of you ever played with a Rubik's Cube? You guys remember those things? They're kind of coming back as novelty toys in some places, too. Well, you take them out of the package, and, and all six sides were impeccable. They had light colors. It was perfectly square. It looked beautiful. And then you start playing around with it. And the colors get all mixed up, and maybe it isn't even all that straight anymore. It gets a little cockeyed. And I couldn't, because I'm not a genius, ever get it back to the way that it was when it came out of the box. Now, maybe one or two of you might be, and you did that. I had to be careful, because I had the joy of sharing this message once before, and there was a genius in the audience that could do that in less than a minute. <laughs> but I couldn't get it back. Now, sure, you might have been the one that would peel the stickers off, right? <laughs> you know where that's going. You put all the light colors back together again. But let's be real. They never looked the same as they were before you tried peeling them off and the edges got buggered up. Or you maybe popped the cubes off and placed them back in some particular order, but even that didn't look straight. Point being, at some, some place in our past, after all worked so well and we got involved with it and something changed, it didn't quite work the same again. See, at some point along the way, man rejected God and his awesome plan and chose instead to live in celebration of himself. We decided that we would exchange the satisfaction that God himself is for lesser created things. And we find the account of this 
in Genesis chapter 3. And I would, I would ask you, I would implore you, I would beg you to take a look at it after today. Because we will unpack the anatomy of sin that has corrupted our expression of stewarding everything he has so lavishly given us right there. And it's the same exact issue that haunts us and taunts us and cripples us today. See, God knew very well there was only one thing he told them not to do. Love was so free to run and it was so free to give this one point of instruction. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden. He knew that if, if they elected freely to reject him and all of his splendor and instead rely on themselves and their own ideas and whatever he had made instead of him, that it would bring a brokenness in the relationship between him and them, a brokenness between them and one another, and a ripple effect throughout all of creation forevermore because of that decision. Because it would also make them recipients of his wrath. What we find is that the consequence of sin ran rampant early on and continues to plague us today. And I would give you this definition of sin as opposed to the definition of stewardship earlier. Sin is denying the satisfying glory of God by not trusting him to be who he always has been and forever will be. And by extension, we don't trust in his promises or provisions because those things are an expression of his character. So we effectively deny his glory when we deny them as well. The anatomy of sin unfolds in that third chapter of Genesis like this. You recall the story to some degree, right? Adam and Eve were in the garden, and, and the serpent came up to Eve, and Adam was there the whole time, and, and there was this dialogue that went on, and decisions made, and things happened, and yeah, it kind of went like this. So the serpent approached Eve and, and fed her the temptation to doubt the satisfying character of God early on. The doubt that God is really satisfying all that he always has been and forever will be. And by extension, we start doubting that his promises are truer, best, or his provisions sufficient for us. There was this doubt, and you see it in the way that the serpent posed the question, did God really say? Can you trust him Thus what comes out of him, thus what he offers of himself and, and by himself through what he's created. Can you really trust him? And right there early on in our history, we then see the continual slide downhill in a sinful decision process. We try to combat the lie to distrust God in our own strength or ways. See, Eve responded to the serpent with much truth, but not just truth. She said, yeah, we, we cannot eat of that tree in the midst of the garden. But she said something else that you will never find in the second chapter of Genesis. She also said, we cannot touch it lest we die. God never said you guys can't touch that fruit on that tree. I mean, by theory, they were supposed to work the garden and take care of it, so they probably would have been in contact with it. And you might even allow a little recreation time to pick the fruit and play catch back and forth in the garden. All he said was, don't eat of it. So Eve, in a practical expression of sin, before the fruit ever crossed her lips, and for Adam as well, already had stopped trusting God and relied on her own ideas to combat the power of sin. She didn't rely on the word of God being sufficient. 
Just she didn't rely on God to be sufficient in combating the enemy and the temptation to sin. So we end up distrusting God. Then we rely on our own ideas to replace that vacancy of satisfaction that we would have found in him through faith in him to begin with. And then we succumb to and believe the lie that God plans less than good for us in doing life with himself. Oh, he was withholding that thing over there is something that he isn't willing to give me that I have to have. So he's not interested or capable of being interested in my best. I need to be looking out for me. And then we take the next step when we place our trust in created things to be satisfied because God is not believed to be capable or interested in satisfying us himself. Well, he's willing to withhold. He's not giving me what I need. That is what I need. Therefore, I need to get about getting that to be satisfied because he's never going to be capable or interested in giving me what I really think I have to have. That's when the fruit crossed the lips, but it was the result of her not trusting him to begin with. And Adam is in the same boat going all along with this so neither one is innocent. And then we try to perpetually save ourselves and make ourselves right and, and all of creation and all of the, the collateral damage and all of the consequences of our decisions. In other words, we try to overcome the guilt and the shame and the fear of living in a world just wrecked with the consequences of denying the glory of God in all of the ways that it plays out. What did they put on afterwards when they realized the the shame of their nakedness, the lack of honor that had all of a sudden been vacated because of the broken relationship with the one that they were created in the honorable image of. What did they put on? Leaves, fig leaves, right? <laughs> How many of you have ever gotten up after a night of camping outdoors and decided to get dressed in vegetation? <laughs> You're laughing because it's obscene, isn't it? I mean, you consider if you put some leaves on, how long are they really going to cover you up? Besides the fact they are very uncomfortable, they're going to get dry and crispy, and they're probably going to flake off. You go running through the rest of the woods, they're going to fall off. Their point is, that's not what God created leaves for. That is misstewardship in its own expression of such. We're using a created thing to deal with the consequences of sin in a way that that created thing was never created, because that doesn't bring the kind of glory to God that it was indelibly created to do from the start. They tried to fix it that way. Then they blame one another. You can see the ripple effects playing out in the garden. What we see here and here is that the power of sin now drives all men to act like wannabe owners rather than stewards. Paul touches on this at the beginning of, of Romans in that first chapter. He talks about the headwater sin and then everything else that God mercifully has allowed to unfold so that we would be awakened to come back to the splendor of his glory to begin with. He talks about the fact that we have all denied the satisfying glory of God to begin with. Who he is that has been present with us forever past, now, and forever will be. We deny that, and then as a result of that, we create idols out of created things to try to replace what only he could ever offer us. And as if that wasn't enough, God allows us to misuse all other kinds of created things where we find inappropriate relationships between human beings spelled out in the first chapter of, of Romans. 
We've got men with men, women with women, which is not the way they were created to be. We have men and women doing things with one another that were never intended to be done outside of marriage. We have lying and we have lust and we have deceit and gossip and and all kinds of malicious things going on. And all of those are not the things in and of themselves that have separated us from God and made us recipients of his wrath. They're the byproducts of first and foremost denying the satisfying glory of God himself and then seeking replacements in everything else that he's created instead of back in him, the one who created us. Those are the the incredibly broken ways of trying to fix what's wrong is by misusing everything else that has been created. And we're on this constant treadmill in our lives out of this feeling of guilt, out of shame, this lack of knowing who we are because we don't get whose we are anymore, living in constant fear of of all that's broken and not right and trying to fix it with our own ideas and with everything else that he's made. We're constantly looking for identity and peace and hope and joy in anything and everything but the one who's made it all for his fame and for our good. Constantly, we we live this life where we're perversely looking for replacements satisfaction and created things. We're no longer looking vertically, but we're looking horizontally. Wow, like the cross, huh? We're not looking vertically, we're looking horizontally for satisfaction in this life. And the implication of this sin shift on our stewardship is that we all strive to use creation for our glory in whatever ways we think are best, because at various levels of our heart, we really do not trust God to be good and supremely satisfying for our hearts, our souls, our lives. And it shapes a self-centered use of, of ourselves, our relationships with him, with one another in our marriages and in our parenting and in our neighboring and our, our co-working. It breaks our, our use of work instead of for his glory, but for ours. It, it breaks our use of, of resources such as finances or clothing or, or homes or cars, where it's really not about making much of him with it. It's more about trying to appease and satisfy the, the deep vacuum that never gets quenched in our hearts. The ramifications are, are absolutely endless, and it cripples us experiencing life to the fullness with him and with everybody else that we've been intended to be in community with. Our acting like wannabe owners has been the motive of every single human being's life but one, and it's all over the pages of Scripture, and it just spills out from Genesis all the way through the text. It's constantly before us. You just roll one chapter later to Genesis 4, and what do we see there? You all know the story of Cain and Abel. Here's two brothers. One was given the opportunity to steward livestock, and the other to steward crops. And both had the opportunity by the mercy and grace of God to to grow these things and cultivate them, and, and they were very productive. And one gave the best of what he had been given the opportunity to steward, as if to say, I affirm you are incredible, and I trust you're going to continue to be. You are amazing, God. And the other didn't give the best because he didn't quite think God would keep being the same God that helped him get what he had to begin with. And when God called him on the quality of his worship offering, what did he do to try to remedy the situation? He annihilated his competition. He killed his brother. As if that would have made him the best worshiper on the planet. But the consequences continue to roll out from there. The Tower of Babel, we find that God had given even the dirt and the, the straw to make bricks out of 
in a way that could have been used good for people to continue to go forth and multiply to the edge of the earth. They decided to, to gather up and make much of themselves in trying to get to God instead of realizing it's God that is offered to come to them. You continue to see this in the 16th chapter with a guy that we used to have different names in his wife, but we know him as Abraham and Sarah. God had promised them that they would be the ones through whom which his seed would come to redeem the world. And, and yeah, it was 13 years later, and they were a little older, probably the, just about anybody in this room. But is that a reason to doubt God, just because we get older? And he hasn't done it when we think he should do what he promised he was going to do? And his wife had this cockamamie idea, said, why don't you just take my maidservant and get busy with her, and we'll get this promise delivered when we're ready, which is now, because we're getting too old to wait for God. We have been dealing with the repercussions of that stewardship issue ever since, haven't we? They misused the life of Hagar, the servant, in a way that she was never intended to have a relationship with Abraham. And the stories just continue to unfold. Jonah wouldn't go to his enemies for self-righteous reasons. Every single one of these are a mirror of our own souls, our own ways of acting like wannabe owners. Think about in your own life the ways that you use all that you've been given. Even from your relationship with God, do you use it in a way that you try to get him to owe you instead of you living in response to his lavishness in your life? Your marriage, your job. I can think back when I was 18 years old and how much time and effort I would put into washing and waxing a car every single Saturday because of what it would somehow attain for me when I was out in public. Like, wow, that guy's pretty special. He's valuable. Look at his car. That says it right there. I didn't get it back then. I got it a few years later, but it isn't just for young people that struggle with, with this issue, is it? I can think back four or five years ago when I struggled even with a career. is in a new space doing something new and different, and I... I struggled when people wouldn't respond to me as if it said I wasn't meaningful and valuable, when emails wouldn't be returned and phone calls were ignored, somehow as if that would define my value. We see it in the movies and the, the bahonky like you know, Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And that was never the load our spouse was supposed to have. We find our completeness in Christ and we offer that to one another so that one another can get it from him. We see it in our children. You know, when you go out to eat and you're at Elmer's or Denny's and the kids are acting up and you're like, oh my gosh, I hope nobody recognizes us. As if that reflects on your value as a parent. Yeah, maybe a little bit. But no, it's, it's not supposed to be like that. We even see with the kids when we, we press them to perform on athletic fields and academically as if they're going to accomplish something we couldn't because it will make us feel better if we live vicariously through them. This stuff spills out everywhere. We go to work to do things because we feel it's going to make us get the extra buck to buy the thing that we actually will have satisfaction through. We spend time with people that have the same ideas we have. They think like us. They look like us. They act like us because we need to be affirmed in what we're doing to feel okay about ourselves instead of hanging out with people that have nothing to do with us because we've got everything we need where it should have been from to begin with. You name it. The misstewardship is rampant in and out of all of our lives. What we are most passionate about will always drive the motive behind whatever we're doing. And that means it will also drive what we do. What we're doing, why we're doing it. The beautiful thing is that even back in the third chapter of Genesis, God never relinquished his, his plan, his promise 
to make us in his image and likeness, to know him and enjoy him and make much of him through the stewarding of everything that he had created, relationship with himself, one another, and everything else, then, now, and forevermore. And in the midst of this garden rebellion that we still participate in, he mercifully promised and patterned the provision of his unstoppable grace through the person and work of his son, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one that would triumph over the enemy that tempted and over the power of sin that corrupted right there. Jesus himself became the perfect steward we've fallen short of being. God spoke of him in the 15th and the 21st verse in a demonstrative way. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is a promise of the conqueror, Christ himself, to come given at the beginning for all time. There is a demonstration, a pattern of the one, the son, to come in the beginning for all time to overcome the shame and the guilt right there in the garden, where the Father, the Lord God, made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them that were far superior to those fig leaves they tried on earlier. Jesus became the perfect steward we've fallen short of being. He, he perfectly stewarded the entirety of his humanity. From the very moment he was conceived in flesh, until the very last breath on the cross, there wasn't a moment in his entire existence that he did not trust, know, enjoy, and make much of his Father unto the fame of God and the good of everything that had ever been created. He lived the perfect life, the perfect steward of all that he had been given in all the ways that none of us ever have on our own. He is the brother's keeper that Cain was never willing to be for Abel. He is the missionary to the world, the people decided not to be in building the Tower of Babel. He left his palace to come to us instead of building a palace that we could never get to on our own. He is a faithful husband that Abraham stumbled in being to Sarah, and he's a compassionate friend to his enemies. That's us, that Jonah was too self-righteous to be himself. He is the gospel. He is the atonement for our sinful misstewardship. In other words, he restores the inherent innocence of all that we have chosen wrongly instead of the glory of God driving, compelling, and shaping our stewardship in this life. He is the forgiver of all of the shame that has come by losing the honor as sons and daughters through our rebellion against our Father, the King of Kings. He is the one that has reconciled our relationship with him and therefore is the enabler of our new liberated life of stewardship by restoring us to the righteous power of his righteousness that informs and empowers all of our stewardship forevermore. Because it is through him, in him, and by him alone that we get forgiven, we get restored, and we get empowered to live in the image and likeness of the one that had the heart for us to be that way when he created at the very beginning. This is kind of Tim Kellerist, but I would put it this way. The gospel itself, it is the validating performance record of Jesus that is received by faith, which unlocks unimaginable satisfaction and opportunity by making us right, and then we are enabled to receive the reward of innocence, honor, and power for being right, as if we had never been wrong. The gospel affords us a, a threefold expression of salvation, as we find there again, also in Romans chapter 1, where Paul talks about it, 
It's the power of salvation for all who believe. And he, he comes to the, the latter part of the verse in verse 17. He goes, you're saved by faith and for faith. The righteous shall live by faith. The gospel affords us a one-time deliverance from the penalty of sin, which is death. It promises us, eventually, a complete deliverance from the presence of sin. Here, thank God for that, huh? And everywhere around us when he comes back. But in the meantime, there's this ongoing deliverance available from the power of sin in this life, which consistently challenges our hearts and our minds to trust, to know and enjoy, make much of him in all of our expressions of stewardship. See, because of Christ's righteousness, we get God to live within us by the power of the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do more than anything else? He leads the fan club of Jesus. He points him out to us all the time so that we can see how incredibly spectacular he is. And then not only does he just point him out and leave us to our own decisions, but he, he works within us powerfully to trust in him for who he always has been and forever will be and is in the immediate that we need so that we can look to him for his promises and provisions and his proven character that's present in a way that will allow us to let go of whatever other thing we've been trusting in to try to get what we thought we needed instead of him. And as we experience how incredibly beautiful and satisfying he is, and we let go of misstewarding any other created thing, we're then free to use that created thing in a way that brings glory to him and good to other people over and over and over again. It's that process of transformation by which we make much of him in blessing others with the good of what he's given us. We find ourselves hanging out with people we never would have hung out with because we don't need them to agree with us for us to forever be okay because we find we're okay because of who he is and what he did for us through faith alone. We will find ourselves spending money instead of obtaining things that we think we have to have in ways that bring glory to him and bless others because we can be more selfless with what we've been given. We don't have to do jobs to get certain positions because we have the highest position attained in our brother at the throne of God. We find ourselves loving our spouses and, and showing them Jesus instead of needing our spouses to be the ones that appease us by being okay with us because we find we're okay through the blood of Christ with the Father of our lives. I've even found this personally effective in my life and I'm not saying I've arrived because I haven't. But an ongoing basis where I have been able to start experiencing liberation from getting up to preach even a message like this because I don't need the attaboy when I'm done. I get to preach because I'm his boy. The transformation difference, sometimes the activity changes, but it always is the motivation that he changes. He changes our stewardship of everything we've ever been given to be for his fame and the good of others around us as we find what we've always really needed in and through him instead of in the things that he's given us in a misappropriated way. And what we find is that we now get to join him in this redemptive mission that he was up to and had in store even before the fall back in Genesis. His redemption of the world moved by the, the outlying of the word and the power of the spirit. We now find that stewardship is an expression of worship that we get to get in on. And what we see is that we now get to discover living in celebration of God's glory with all that he's given us. We get to live in celebration of the satisfaction imparted to us by grace with everything else that is created. And it goes far beyond our offerings in here. That is like a, a, a shadow of a whole life of worship, isn't it? 
It changes why we come. We don't come to get. We come because we've already been given everything we need in Christ. So we sing to make much of him, not to appease him. We, we listen to preaching, not to appease him, but to respond to the one who, who has appeased himself through our faith in his son. It changes everything for our lives. We are more free to love like we have been loved because we have no more need for limitations as we experience the satisfaction of the gospel working itself down into us and out of us in our living. In three weeks' time, we will have opportunity to gather and unpack one small expression of worship that he's afforded all of us. But interestingly enough, tells the gospel story very much in tune with how he has himself. We'll have an estate planning workshop here on the 19th from 9 a.m. till noon. It's fast-paced. It's interactive. Um, It gives you a chance to see how we get to respond with what we've been given to make much of him and blessing others, both while we're here, but we can't make decisions, but also ultimately when he calls us out of here. Because every single one of us has been given relationships and things to worship him with. And as we encounter how the gospel frees us to no longer be afraid of death or the thought that we don't have enough is flipped to realize how much we do have, why wouldn't we want to get in on making much of him with planning like that? And by the way, it does mimic very much what he's done for us. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 1 as well this week. You will find estate planning, inheritance planning, all over the first chapter of Ephesians. You have a father that gets all of us in a redeemed creation through the death of his son. That's an inheritance plan. And you have us who get the father, the son, the spirit, and a redeemed creation through the death of a son. That's an inheritance plan. We get to worship him with what we've been given, and we all have been given so much. None of us have been given nothing. So I'd encourage you to come in a few weeks for that, see how it applies in your life as we look at tools and and flush that out. And then following the workshop, there'll be opportunity to sit down one-on-one and unpack that more specifically in your life. I would love to get to do that. But tying it back to today before Scott comes up here in a moment, and the worship team will come as well. Remember, you have been destined to steward. And Jesus has stewarded in all the ways that you fall short so you can get to know him and enjoy him and have the whys and even the what's you do transformed unto his fame and the good of everybody around you as they already have been, and he continues to want to do so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your heart in making us to know you and to enjoy you in a way that we would forever be satisfied. And Jesus, thank you for restoring that and offering the reconciliation and the relationship through which your power flows to inform us and and satisfy us and reshape how we do life forevermore. Would you bring that into the space of each of our lives as you know we've always needed and we need at this moment? Would you bring repentance and a greater trust in you for satisfaction in a way that frees us and reshapes us to worship you with all that you give us? And thank you for how you've done that in many of our lives to this point as a testimony to what you continue to do and will do until we see you face to face. And then we'll get to do it forever perfectly. Thank you. We love you. We adore you. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.